It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. I am John Schmelk, joined by Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino with you for the next hour at 973-667-1960. We're going to do our deep dive on Daniel Jones's second year, evaluate where he is, more importantly, where he has improved from his first season, or maybe where he hasn't improved from his first season, and we'll talk about that and take your calls as well. But first, I want to remind you that Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by the New York Lottery, and you can find it on the Giants Podcast Network, which is presented by Investors Bank. Make sure you head over to the Giants mobile app, giants.com slash podcast, and your favorite podcast platforms to find the archive of all of our podcasts on our podcast network. Lance, Paul, happy Friday. And very quickly, we have the best weekend, in my opinion, of playoff football coming up. We should have four pretty darn good games here, in my opinion. Yeah, I think all four are attractive matchups. I mean, the Baltimore-Buffalo game, to me, is probably the game to watch. I think those are the two hottest teams in the NFL based on their current winning streaks. I've been very high on Baltimore. And the New Orleans-Tampa Bay game is the latest, can you beat a team three times in the same season? And there have been a lot of teams that had success, but I think Tampa Bay is a much different team than where they were when they played New Orleans earlier this season. So I'm looking very much forward to the doubleheader on Saturday and Sunday. And I guess you get a little wiggle room because there's no triple headers, so maybe we have a little bit more time to breathe and grab a meal in between games this time. Uh, see, I'm a glutton for punishment, Lance. I love the double uh, triple headers, the Double exact triple headers on Saturday and Sunday. I mean, wall to wall from from one o'clock all the way till like midnight. It was great. I, I I love six games in one weekend. And more importantly, Dante Dion was activated by the Rams off the practice squad today. Always oh, a Giants angle for you. And you and you know, come on, he was one of my guys, one of my dark horses. I really love the kid's spirit and all the intangibles that he brings. And here it is. How many years later, Johnny's still around? You know, he's still around, which means he's got something to offer because you don't stay in this league, whether it's practice squad or otherwise, if you can't play. And Dante Dion, years later, still around and now activated for tomorrow's playoff yeah, game. He so he just five seems, to him. Yeah, he just seems to find the team that's doing hard knocks each year, and he latches on there. He gets some good publicity <laughs> in the offseason, and we're off from there. Well, I thought you were going to reference Charles James, actually, as yeah, another, another guy. Yeah, another one, both of them. You're right. Yeah. Same, same yeah. thing, absolutely. Yeah. All right, all right. Let's get into Daniel Jones here, guys. But first, I want to remind everybody that Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by the New York Lottery, presenting Money Dots from the New York Lottery. No, this is not Paul Dottino's game, folks. It might sound like it is, but it is not. It is a brand new game from the New York Lottery. As I pull up my copy here, that's not properly loading, which is why I'm trying to vamp a little bit, which is being very unsuccessful. <laughs> it's introducing Money Dots, a new game from the New York Lottery where you play for your chance to win money on the dot. Please play responsibly. Okay, let's get into Daniel Jones here, guys. And I think where I'll start is this. I think the common perception is that he took a step back in his second year. And you look at some of the numbers, and I think you kind of understand it. His quarterback rating dropped seven points. His touchdowns dropped from 24 all the way down to 11. But I think that touchdown number has really clouded the perception of his second season. And I'll give you my really brief reasons why when you dig inside the numbers a little bit. And these are just his overall numbers before we dig into some specifics, all right? 
What makes this very convenient is that he actually had nearly the identical amount of dropbacks in his first year compared to his second. He dropped back 527 times to pass in 2019, 516 times this year. So we don't have to do any adjustment on these numbers. They're pretty much identical in terms of sample size, which makes our exercise here a lot easier to do, okay? His completion percentage jumped to half a percent. His yards went down 80, which is inconsequential. His yards per attempt were the same. His average depth of target did drop around a half a yard, which is significant, but not a big deal. His interceptions dropped by two, and we'll talk about the turnover-worthy plays a little bit later. He was sacked five more times. So, guys, if you look at the peripheral numbers and you kind of push those touchdowns aside, the overall numbers are pretty much the same and there wasn't that much of a change aside from the turnovers, which we'll get into in a second. Paul? Well, I happen to agree with you. I think Daniel Jones took a bad rap because I've got a different set of numbers that also indicate yeah, what do you got? that the bottom line is his explosive plays were down, and I blame that on the lack of explosion from the skill positions. I look at the fact that Evan Ingram couldn't find the end zone. If he tried to walk through the Atlantic Ocean, he still couldn't find it. I look at the fact that Darius Slayton labored through a foot problem the entire time. I looked at the fact that Golden Tate's production went absolutely south as far as could be. And I think it's very telling that when you look at the the throws of Daniel Jones this past year, uh, aerial targets of 15 yards or more, uh, last year had 14 uh, – I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I have it here. I have it here. Um he had uh, five, five touchdowns and seven picks last year in such situations. This year, six touchdowns and only one pick because he was a lot more accurate. But what happens is with the 24 touchdowns to the 11 touchdowns, the, the significant drop in touchdowns, it comes on the short throws, specifically in the red zone. Okay, in the red zone last year, Daniel Jones, 13 touchdowns, no picks. This year, seven touchdowns and two picks. Now, what's the big difference in those numbers? And by the way, completed 68% of his passes in the red zone this year compared to 56 last year. Why? Why the change? Well, two reasons. Number one, the Giants ran the ball better. So when they got into the red zone, they were more balanced. So his passing numbers were going to take somewhat of a hit. But the other reason, in the short field, when you get to the red zone and you have less room to operate, you need guys like Slayton, Ingram, and Tate, and perhaps Barkley coming out of the backfield to weave their magic and to get open in those short spaces so that he can find them for touchdowns. But that didn't happen this year. Ingram had trouble getting open. Tate... I don't know what happened to him other than he may be near the end of the line. And Darius Slayton was hurt, and Barkley wasn't playing. So that's the reason for some of the number dips, specifically the touchdown dips. It's not about Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones played about as well as he did last year. But the scoring punch, I believe, 
is the result of his skill position guys not stepping up and making plays for their quarterback. Now, wanna, I've been saying that all season long. Now, I want to jump in for a second, Lance, and I, I will let you take your turn, but I have a couple numbers to supplement. He went to about three different areas, Paul, here, so I want to jump in on a couple of them here because I have a couple additional numbers. I agree with your red zone analysis. I think that's on the money. Six fewer touchdowns in the red zone. I think that's a big part of this. Um, the one thing that you mentioned that I thought was a big deal is that, and this is why I'm really encouraged, is he did do, he was much more efficient on deep throws this year, and I have passes of 20 or more yards. Last year, he was 16 of 54, which is a 29% completion percentage. This year, he was 20 of 43, which is a 46% completion percentage. That is a big, big difference. On 20-plus yard throws last year, he had four interceptions. He had no interceptions this year. Now, he had 11 fewer attempts and my thought here, guys, and I'd like to get your take on this, I think a lot of people, and I was in this group, were vocal in that they should have tried to take some more shots down the field this year, and I do think that's a fair criticism. But when I looked at the tape of these plays, when I looked at the numbers, my thought here, Lance, is that they told Daniel, we want you taking fewer chances down the field to cut down on these turnovers. So while the attempts are down, the production is actually up. Despite the fact he had 11 fewer attempts on deep passes this year, he had 154 more yards on those deep passes this year, and he had no interceptions compared to four last year. He had about three picks last year where the safety came over on one of those deep throws and intercepted it in front of the wide receiver, right? He didn't have any of those throws this year on those deep throws. So I think maybe trying to reduce that volume to get more efficient attempts from deep was really beneficial to him, Lance, in the long run. Well, to me, the number that jumps out, and a few things that I just want to piggyback off of the two of you saying, the Giants last season had 54 pass plays of 20-plus yards. Now, that number is not just a reflection of the quarterback. To Paul's point, it's also a reflection of the skilled position players around the quarterback making the necessary plays. Plus, I also think having Saquon Barkley on the field helps to get those numbers up. Now, why do I bring up 54 in 2019? That number went down to 36 in 2020. Guys, that's a noticeable drop, okay? That's 18 plays that you had in 2019 that you didn't have in 2020. To say that that's just on Daniel Jones, I think is completely misleading. I think a lot of that is the loss of Saquon Barkley. I think that the biggest difference in the red zone is, yes, them leaning more on the run game when they got within the 20s as opposed to, as Daniel Jones's rookie year showcased, hey, let's give him an opportunity to make plays. So that, I think, was another reason why maybe you didn't see his red zone numbers jump off the page. Now, as far as Golden Tate is concerned, Paul, this is one thing that I think is important to notate when you talk about Golden Tate. He had 85 targets in 2020. He only had 52 in 2000, excuse me, at 2019, he had 85. He had 52 in 2020. His targets dipped extremely between one year versus the other. So while nobody's saying that he was performing at a Pro Bowl level, he was not nearly as involved in the offense as he was in 2019. And by the way, he was in 11 games in 2019. He was in 12 games in 2020. So I don't want to hear, well, the reason why the targets fluctuated was because he wasn't in as many games. We're talking about a difference of one game, but well over I'm 30 sorry, targets. I'm sorry, Lance, but that's where you just want to ride because his snap count was 200 less. Yep. It was well, I get less. that, but, yep. but the targets... Well, why but, was his snap count down? His snap count was down because he wasn't producing. He wasn't getting on the field much in the final month of the season. Well, and I think, Paul, maybe that they valued different things from that spot, too. I think they like getting Austin Mack in there to run block. 
I think they sure. used a lot more two tight ends this yep. year than they used last no year, question. too. So I think, yeah, part of it's probably production, but I think they also just scheme things up a different way, too, which, by the way, also impacts how Jones's numbers does. might have went up or down. i just like to think that if Trey was making more plays consistently earlier in the year, he wouldn't have seen that drop. No, that's fair, too. Well, it's very possible. All I'm saying is, though, a difference between 30 targets versus one season or another, it's hard to make up that production if you're down 30 targets. No, of course. Regardless of whether or not you get... Because remember, when you get the snap count, that doesn't mean you're getting the ball thrown to you. There's a difference between snap count and target count. Target count, if you said you got 100-some-odd targets and you only had 30 catches, yes, something's not right there, meaning you're not making plays. But if you're getting targeted less, it's hard to make up the deficit is what yeah, I'm Yeah, but arguing. without the snaps, you can't get targeted because you're not on the field. 100%. But, but what I'm saying is, is that the targets, is a, a receiver is at the mercy of the quarterback. If the yeah, receiver's not yeah, getting thrown yeah. the ball, how the hell is he supposed to make plays? Okay, but again, you've you got to earn your snaps on the field. I don't think Golden Tate did enough to do that consistently this year. Hey, look, but, to but me, aside from that, right. Slayton was nursing a, a foot, and Ingram certainly did not make nearly enough plays that he needed to make and, and had made earlier in his career. No, it, and, and Barkley wasn't there either. There were so many deficiencies in the Giants' skill positions that – that for people not to take that into account when they evaluate Jones would be erroneous. That's now, the bottom line. Here are a couple of things that are interesting. One, and Lance, you made this good point a few weeks ago when we were going through the Giants' offense, right? They had 16 fewer offensive touchdowns this year. That's correct, right? That's the correct number, the Giants? Well, it was 44 versus 27. That right. was the difference. But I, but I believe yeah. one was different. There was one Correct. On defense, one was right? uh, a defensive score, right. which brought it down. Correct. Yeah. So that's about one touchdown per game. Well, I for, for our factor fiction today that's going to hit on Giants.com, I took a look at the Giants' plays of 20-plus yards when we talk about explosive plays, right? Well, do you want to know why the Giants' touchdowns were gone? Listen to this, guys. In 2019, the Giants had 18 offensive plays that went for 20 or more yards that resulted in a touchdown, okay? Three were running plays, 15 were pass plays. Take a gander. And I'm guessing you don't have this, so I'm hoping I, I, I get legitimate guesses No, I, guesses had, I had a copy read it this morning, so ah, I, can't, oh, you, I can't go okay. through this with Okay, you. so Lance, you guess. In 2020, how many plays of 20-plus yards that went for touchdowns did the Giants have? Take a guess. In 2020? Yeah. Well, let's see. I mean, first of all, if you had only 36 pass plays in general and the touchdowns dipped tremendously, I would say, I don't know, did they have three touchdowns of 20-plus yards? They had four pass and two run. So okay. last year they had 18, this year they had 6. So that's a 12-touchdown dip from last year to this year. And in pass plays alone, that's a drop from 15 to 4. So that's 11. So what really killed Daniel's touchdowns, Paul brought up the red zone already, that went um, down as Paul had previously mentioned. I'll get the exact number here, Paul mentioned it, but I have it in front of me too. His red zone touchdowns from last year to this year went down from 13 to 7. So that's six mm -hmm. touchdowns right there, right? So if you're if that's what your red zone touchdowns do, and then overall for the Giants, again, this is not Jones, so McCoy's in the mix here for a couple games, but it's not going to sway the numbers that much. And then your passes of 20-plus yards drops 11. That's going to explain a whole lot of the variance as to why the touchdown passes dropped a whole lot. They just weren't, even the big plays that they were getting, they were not going for touchdowns. And look, if you're going to get a bunch of 30 or 40-yard catches, you're going to get lucky sometimes and they're going to go for scores, right? That was not happening for the Giants this year. Even the big plays that we're getting, guys, were not resulting in touchdowns. 
You know well, what you I'd like to be to able have? to punch it in regardless of whether or not those are going for long scores, well, I would argue. Well, well, it depends where that first play gets you, right? I mean, if that first play moves you from your own 25 to the other team's 45 and it's a 30-yard play, you still have a lot of work to do at that point. You know what I mean? Sure. Go ahead, Paul. I was going to say I would love the number, John, and, and it's available to us, but we'd have to go the long way and try to actually use matchsticks to count it up. Well, I might be able to find it. What do you need? Well, I— it's how many of those 20-plus-yard touchdowns that the Giants scored in 2019 were by player. Because mm. I would say to you that I got a hunch that Ingram, Slayton, and Tate are probably the guys who had reached the end zone in those situations. Right. And in 2020, they weren't doing it. And that's more on them than it is Daniel. Well, look, I don't think it's fair to take the quarterback out of the equation at all. He's you can't the one take it out of it, but it's a big part of it, no. especially when it's a trend and all three guys aren't doing it. Well, look, here's the thing, okay? I think there are a couple things to, to take in consideration here when you look at this year. And I think one big thing that I noticed, guys, that was a huge difference in the way Jones gained his yardage. And I have not told you guys about this number yet. And I think it's significant. So... What Pro Football Focus does, they track what percentage of a quarterback's yards come through the air and what percentage is yards after the catch. So it gives an idea of how much work the quarterback does and how much work the receiver Mm -hmm. does, right, in any individual year. Well, last year, about 54% of Jones' yards came through the air. So 54% were air yards, 46% were yards after catch from the receivers, right? Okay. That was the 22nd most air yards in the league. So he was in the bottom half of the league. Well, this year, 63% of Jones's passing yards came through the air. That was the fifth highest percentage in the NFL. So I said, okay, that's interesting. Let me look at the players. So I broke it down player by player, right? Last year to this year, who had fewer yards after the catch in terms of helping the quarterback out? Slayton was down 40 yards, not that significant. Shepard up 20 yards, not that significant. Ingram up 32 yards, not really significant. So those guys pretty much held study, steady in terms of yards after the catch. Well, here's the difference, and it's one guy you guys are, two guys you guys mentioned already. Oh, Tate. Golden Tate was minus yeah. 212, significant. And again, that has more to do with number of catches and snaps than it does anything else. I'd have to look at his yards after catch per reception. I'm sure that's probably not as different. The other big one, and I think people are forgetting this part of it, Saquon Barkley had 386 mm-hmm. yards after the catch last year. So Jones's numbers as a rookie were probably skewed a lot by the fact he could just throw a three-yard pass to Saquon yeah. Barkley, and Barkley goes and runs for 25 yards after he catches the John, thing. John, G- Golden just, Tate's numbers are just as dramatic. No, they are, right. 2.3 yards per catch this season. 5.8 yards after the catch last year. There you go. So, Over double. So he just wasn't getting the help from those two guys. And whatever we don't have to pinpoint the reason, but that was one of the big reasons why they weren't getting as many big plays where, you know, we looked at it, the number of 20-plus yard passes didn't change much, right, in terms of the number of completions. So you think, wait a second. So if he completed about the same number of 20-plus yard passes, why would the number of 20-plus yard plays be down so much? Is because those 10-yard passes where the receiver goes and runs for an additional 15 yards to turn it into an explosive play simply was not happening as much. 
Yeah, because the numbers are reflected based on the production of the players around the quarterback. That's why we keep referencing Saquon Barkley as a weapon, not just a running back because of what he could do as a receiver. When you talk about Golden Tate, off the top of my head, I remember he had that deflected touchdown pass against New England that was in a big 2019. One. Yep. Mm-hmm. Then you look at this season, he had the catch against the Eagles in Philadelphia. I don't remember how long that was. I want to say that probably was over 20 yards, that touchdown when he went up and, and made a pretty good grab. And then he had the one against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, but that which, were, but those weren't any yards after catch plays. though. You know no, they I mean? weren't. I'm just right. thinking of lengthy, I guess, yep. plays off the top of my head is what I'm thinking about. No, the Patriots one was definitely yardage after the catch. Yeah, last he year. he caught it and then sure. ran with it. Yes, last year for sure. But I don't remember one of those from Tate this year. No, neither do I. Yeah. Pass and breaks one. I don't That's why one. I'm just trying to remember the lengthy catches that he made. Forget whether or not there was yardage after the catch. It's yeah. those two touchdowns that come to mind. Outside of that, you don't really recall a lot of game-changing plays. All right, let's move on to a couple other things here, guys. What, there were three things that I really focused on for Daniel this year that I thought he really needed to improve on. And I thought we saw some improvement in those areas, okay? One, turnover-worthy plays. You look at the overall numbers before you take a look at the actual, you know, advanced statistics that that PFF has. PFF has, they they do turnover-worthy plays. So they basically figure out what plays are the quarterback's fault, which ones aren't. I I have everything broken down even without them. But they give fans a basis. As a rookie, he had 31. This year, he had 17. So that's a drop of nearly 50%, which is kind of what we talked about this offseason, right? You want him to cut those turnover-worthy plays in half. Well, his fumbles dropped from 18 to 11. And his interceptions kind of held steady from 12 to 10. But if you look at it, he did do a better job of protecting the football, especially later in the year. Paul, if you want to get into some of the, the, the specifics with these turnovers, I have them written down too. But I think it is important to note that the big thing we asked from Daniel Jones heading into year two was to protect the football better. Mm-hmm. And he, by any standard, I don't care what metric you use, what eye test you use, he did a better job of that, period. Totally agree. Look, one of the fumbles they charged to him this year was Goldman dropping a handoff yeah. against Dallas <laughs> in the final game of the season. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so remember, he immediately... also got a fumble for the Evan Ingram pitch on the reverse play, too. Correct. Remember the one that went Correct. off of Evan Ingram's hands? It yeah. was high and behind him against San Francisco. So two of those fumbles really need to come off the board, and that changes the statistical dynamic. Uh, I well, Paul, had... I, I can tell you, he had 11 fumbles. One was on a scramble quarterback run when he fumbled it out of bounds. I think that was against... Tampa, maybe? Right by the sideline. So no, there was... I, I have him with two fumbles on the run. One against Washington, right hand punch from behind, one against Arizona, left hand tucked on the run. There yes, were two yeah, on the well, run. He was still technically behind the line of scrimmage when he got stripped. Oh, yeah, yeah, one, but, he was on, but he was out of the pocket. He, right. was, on the, he was on the run. Right, right. So, but that was, yeah, two. correct. Two. Fine. That's but, it. Yeah. I, in my count, I counted that second one as, as he was still behind the line of scrimmage, so he could have thrown it. So that's why I counted that as like as a well, fumble. Well, I count on a pocket and not pocket. Okay, that's, that's the way fair. I that's the way I do it. And then you had the two on the handoff, and then you had seven where he was, in my yeah. opinion, maybe held the ball a little too long, didn't protect it as well as he could have. But most of those happened earlier in the year. Spare for those couple against Arizona late. Uh, four blindside strips. All four of the blindside strips came in September and October. Okay. Yeah. Then he had one where the ball simply slipped out of his hand. Just literally slick and fell out of his hand against Washington on November the 8th. Uh, then he cocked it to throw against Arizona and had had that come out. And then the one time where I really got teed off at him, when I really, really thought it was his fault, uh, right hand holding it too low 
and uh, Arizona came in and, and knocked it out. That was the one that really was egregious to me. Other than that, to be perfectly frank with you, I thought there was only maybe two other of his fumbles where I would say, you know what, Daniel, those are bad fumbles, and those are the kinds of fumbles we can't have. The other ones, I can never kill a guy for a, for a total blindside strip. I'm not Although gonna... two of them, I thought he held the ball too long. Well, and, and, well, and to me, that's the trick, right? I'm not going to kill a guy for getting hit as he throws it and he fumbles it. I'm not going to put that in the quarterback. That's not fair. But to me, even if it's a blindside sack, if you don't have two hands on the football or you let him knock the ball out, to me, especially if it's not immediate, and to your point, you hold the ball a little bit too long, I'm still going to tend to put that on the quarterback. But the bottom line is that it's still a lot fewer than he had last year. Yes. He had, let's see, based on my count last year, he had about 12 of those last year where he got sacked and fumbled in the pocket as he was throwing the ball. So that is still down by a good, you know, that would be about 33% a third. So he still improved in that area. And I had 15 in the pocket last year, John. Okay. Well, either way, the number's down, right? Yeah, significantly. And that's the most important thing. Yep. Totally See, I agree. think Daniel Jones had a tale of two seasons in terms of ball security in one. Because, remember, he had at least one turnover in his first eight games. Now, granted, he missed two games in the second half of the season. He didn't play against Seattle and Cleveland. I get that. So the volume of games is not the same. It's eight versus six. But with that being said, you're talking about at least the turnovers that counted. And I'm not considering fumbles and then the Giants recover. He had the one against the Cardinals where he lost a fumble. That was one of the three turnovers for the Giants in that game. And then he had one lost fumble against the Dallas Cowboys. But remember, that was the handoff to Wayne Goldman. And that's it. I mean, those are the only turnovers that were charged against Daniel Jones in the final eight games of the season. So, to me, that's a dramatic turnaround no in doubt. terms of emphasizing ball security and protecting the football and making sure that you're not giving gifts to the opposition. And by the way, let's also, also tip your cap to the offensive line because he frankly just wasn't sacked as much in the final back half of the year except for those two games against Arizona and Baltimore too, right? Well, I think that was a factor as well. Those two games are the ones that jump out where you had a combination of double-digit sacks. But I also think, and Daniel Jones wasn't really asked this, and I don't think he'll ever admit it, but I think his mindset changed too from the first part of the season to the second part of the season where I think he said to himself after Saquon Barkley got hurt, and I've said this time and time again, I think he basically felt as if he needed to be the superhero on the team. And he needed to go above and beyond because he just didn't feel like maybe there were enough playmakers around him. And this, once again, is my own opinion. I'm not saying Daniel Jones felt this way. It's just my observation. And I think that as the season progressed, he realized, listen, there's only so much I could do to make up for the loss of certain personnel. And I think the coaching staff may have emphasized that. And I think that calmed him down a bit where he just said to himself, if I got to take a sack, if I got to throw the ball away, so be it. It is what it is. We'll live to see another possession. So I also think he changed his mindset within the course of this season. No, Lance, I agree. And I think you saw it after that Tampa game, right? He had those two plays in the Tampa game where he tried to make those throws like as he was yeah. getting dragged down. And then after that game, the only other interception he had was one that deflected off of Evan Ingram. So I agree with you, Paul. I think he figured it out that, you know what, I'm not going to force it as much in the second half of the year now once he got through that Tampa game. And to me, at least, things turned after that because he only had one interception after that Tampa Bay game. 
that's significant. That is a large sample size of the season, and I think you did see some growth there in terms of his ability to make better decisions and not to put the ball in harm's way as much. You know, I, I had mentioned this on, on First and Ten, the MSG show that we did before going into the Dallas game. At that point, Daniel Jones had the longest streak in the National Football League, the longest active streak of throwing passes without a pick. He was at 162 throws, which was over five games, going back to the Tampa game without a pick. And then what happened in the Dallas game? Ingram deflected a ball up, and it got intercepted. Yeah, not his and fault. And so the streak was over. Right. It wasn't really his fault, but the streak was over because I jinxed him. And if I hadn't <laughs> given out that stat, he would have gone through the entire second or final month and a half of the season without a pick. So I will take the blame for that, even though Ingram is the one who tipped the ball up in the air. All right, two other items very quickly. He did reduce his average time to throw. Now, it wasn't a ton. It was literally like a tenth and a half in a second, which is less than 5 to 10% of his average throw rate, but that did go down a little bit. I still think sometimes he has to work on getting the ball out a little bit quicker. And then on his interceptions, Paul, the where, on his picks and on the plays where there could have been picks, but the opponent dropped the interception, it was all on these short routes. A lot of these hitches or comebacks mm-hmm. or slants. He only had two passes down the field that could have been picked, and both came late in the year. That underthrow against Dallas when he underthrew it to Slayton on the left sideline, and Stephon Diggs almost got the pick. And then the Ravens jumped that deep cross in that on that pass in Week 16. But other than that, almost all of his picks or potential picks where the defense just dropped it, really were on short passes. So that's something he is going to have to clean up because a lot of times if you throw a pick on a short pass like that on a jump route, that can turn into a touchdown. So in terms of his decision-making on his passes, that to me is where he is to do most of his cleaning up, is making sure those guys are open and the defense isn't breaking on the ball when he's throwing some of those quick short routes. They need to do a better job of getting off the line of scrimmage and being able to fight for the ball and help their quarterback out. That's what they need to do. That's more on them than it is him. And I'll, I'll tell you one other mm. thing. I've got there Jones were a couple plays. In the fairness, Paul, there were a couple plays where guys were just not open and he was throwing. I'm not going to tell right. you it didn't happen. Right. But generically, across the, the body of work for the entire season, this all goes back to why the Giants need playmakers because the skill position guys did not do enough for him. But I want to go back to Lance's point and yours too, John, about Jones making the proper decision of throwing the ball away or taking a sack. I charge Jones with taking five sacks last season, okay, five, that's it. This year, he understood that, hey, you know what, Uh, maybe it's not such a bad idea to take a sack because I had to charge him with taking 11 this year where it was on him, where he decided, you know what, I am going to take the sack because it's the better play. He took 11 sacks this year, and I see that as a positive as opposed to a negative. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I think for any young quarterback, that's a part of the developmental process. Part of the process is to not have a negative play by you sort of making a negative decision, meaning even if it's you losing yards, you've protected your team because you didn't try to go the extra effort, which would have led to a turnover. Or you ran out of bounds as opposed to staying in for an extra two yards, and then you would have taken a hit, and maybe you would have coughed up the football. Those are the types of decisions, those are the types of plays at least that I'm analyzing it from in terms of the numbers that you brought up. I wanted to also go back to your points about 
the shorter passes leading to mistakes. There was one play, and I could be wrong, but I think I'm recalling it correctly. The first game in Philadelphia, I believe one of his interceptions was a deflection off of Evan Ingram, yeah. and it was when right Evan was running a relatively short in route, and then it got either thrown behind him, Evan got a finger on it, it led to an interception. So as much as that is about, to Paul's point, the skilled position players coming through— it's also about timing, guys, okay? And we can't lose sight of that. What I mean by that is if Evan is pushed off the line of scrimmage and he's jammed and Daniel is throwing more towards a spot as opposed to, you know, waiting for the player, then to me that's on both individuals there. It's on the quarterback maybe needing to have a little bit more patience. And then, yes, to your point, it's on the skilled position player having to do a better job getting off the line so that the timing stays in sync with the quarterback. But those shorter routes, I could point fingers at both entities as opposed to just saying it's on the skilled position players, especially if it comes down to timing. I realize we're late here, guys, but there are two other numbers I want to get in very quickly. And, Paul, this goes back to something that we mentioned before, and it's a great number, which is why I want to give it. Uh, we don't have to do further conversation on it. We talked about how much better Daniel was throwing down the field this year. On passes between 20 and 29 yards, according to, to, to Pro Football Focus, he was the he had the highest percentage of what they consider plus accuracy throws on those passes of any quarterback in the NFL this year. So, And that was after um, he was a 54% plus actu- accuracy rate on those throws. It was only 24% last year. So he did become a more accurate thrower throwing down the field. And this is the other thing that to me is actually encouraging. You know, last year, Daniel Jones actually played pretty well under pressure. This year, he didn't play as well under pressure, which, yeah, you say, well, that well, yeah, you haven't won to play better under pressure. That's fine. But he played so much better this year when he did not face pressure as opposed to last year. And I think that's a really good sign because that shows when you can protect him and everything is going right, he's a better quarterback. And I can give you some of the numbers, but his completion percentage was higher, his average depth of target was higher, his yards per attempt was higher, his interceptions were down. All those, his big-time throws were almost doubled in those situations. So to me, for a guy like Jones, the fact that he was able to play so much better when he was protected, I think shows his upside where if you do give him better protection, we've talked about how poor the Giants' offensive line was protecting the quarterback this year, the sacks, the pressure rate, all that stuff. That, to me, is a really good sign that he played better when things went right because you hope as you move forward and the team gets better, things will go right on plays far more often. Yeah, you know, John, I I think one of the other numbers that reflects exactly what you said, it's a different number I have, but it goes exactly to your point about Jones' deep throws 15 yards or more downfield. Last year completed 37% on 79 throws. This year, 58% on 64 throws. Big difference. Okay? That's a tremendous difference. It also shows he didn't throw the ball downfield nearly as much either, which, again, goes back to not having the playmakers who are necessarily going to be getting down there to be uh, positive uh, targets. The bottom line is this. As you peel back the layers of the onion, in each factor of Daniel Jones's games, it, it's almost across the board he was better in almost every area that, that the Giants needed him to improve upon. Now, it's easy to say the Giants did not average 20 points a game this year. They did not have a ton of passing touchdowns. They did not have a 1,000-yard wide receiver or a target. Oh, my God, must be the quarterback's fault. He must have regressed. Well, that's fool's gold if you really believe that. Because it's quite clear from all these things that we've been able to dive into 
Daniel Jones improved this year in a ton of ways. And anybody who thinks otherwise has not been watching the game. Lance, give me your final thoughts. Well, if there's one game that jumps out to me, John, to your point about when he didn't face pressure and whether or not he took advantage of that, the only one rough game was the Tampa Bay game where there were opportunities to be had down the field when he wasn't pressured and the throws were just off. I mean, that's the one game that comes to mind. Outside of that... I think regardless of what the statistics show, remember the optics is important to come in to play here in terms of the number analysis as well. That's the only game that I think people could point to yeah. if you want to get ultra critical of, hey, there was a game where there were plays to be had, wasn't really pressured, just couldn't take advantage. But as far as Paul's point is concerned, everybody always wants to place the blame on one individual in football when a team doesn't perform at the level that you had anticipated. Oh, it's and the lazy way out, Lance. Of course it is, but it, it can't be emphasized enough that when you evaluate an offense and you evaluate a defense, to put it on one player is just ridiculous. Because I know it's a cliched line to say football is the ultimate team sport, but you know what? The reason why the cliched line belongs in the conversation is because there's a lot of validity behind it. So, yes, did does Daniel Jones need to perform better moving forward? Absolutely. Are there a lot of things that he did well that he doesn't get enough notoriety for? Absolutely. But if you really want to truly tell the whole story of the Giants' 2020 offense, you have to point to a variety of factors why they scored 17.5 points per game. And if you think it's just Daniel Jones on an island, then I don't think you were watching close enough. 100%. All right, guys, let's get to the calls. We appreciate you being patient, but I thought it was important for us to get all that information we had out there in terms of the important stuff with Daniel this year. Hopefully that educate a lot of people out there and you get a feel for exactly why some numbers got better, why some numbers got worse, and where Daniel stands in terms of moving forward into year number three. Giant fans, I'm way behind on copy, folks, so get ready for some commercials. Get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with the Giants brand, the debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at InvestorsBank.com slash Giants, member FDIC. And don't forget, Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by the New York Lottery, introducing Money Dots, a new game from the New York Lottery where you play for your chance to win money on the dot. Please play responsibly. All right, Bob and Parsippany has been waiting since the start of the show. Bob, I know that was a longer open than usual. I apologize for making you hold through it, but now you have the floor and was, you make whatever it was, I, it was a good. It's a good listen. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I hope everybody's doing well uh, today, and uh, I would like to make the case that Gettleman was the problem. And I think he would have been fired this year by Mara, except for Mara didn't want to bring in a new GM and force him to keep a head coach and a quarterback that was not of his own choosing. Explain how it was Gettleman's Gettleman. fault. Ex- okay, we'll yeah, get to that. Ahead. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. And I got, I got, I got a few points to make. If okay. I, I, you bear with me, uh, I think he's been bad from day one. He totally misjudged the existing talent on the team when he came, when he arrived, and he has admitted that. And he set the rebuild. He set the rebuilding process back a full year because of that. He admitted that. His. His first free agent pickups were a disaster. Uh, Nate Solder wasn't just a miss. He's also a cap killer. If he's cut this year, the cap hit's still going to be $10 million. Okay. And if he's kept, it'll be it'll be $16 million. Bob, literally, the, Dave, we, we, air, we aired Dave's press conference, and he said, and both he and John Mara admitted to mistakes in 2018. No one's going to argue that. That's okay. fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the plus side, I'll give him, I'll give him some credit. Uh, he finally got it right this year with Bradbury and Martinez. When he came to the, when he came on board, he was supposed to improve the record of the team. That didn't happen. He was supposed to fix the offensive line. That didn't happen. 
he was supposed to find a new head coach. Shermer failed, and now I'm reading an article that in, the, in a publication called The Athletic that said that John Marrow was the one who insisted that Joe Judge be added to the list of candidates. He was supposed to find an edge rusher, didn't do that, and he was supposed to find a future uh, franchise quarterback, and there, there we have an incomplete grade, but I would say that the needle is pointing downward. As far as his draft picks, uh, in an article that appeared on this, on you know, on the giant website, Gettleman is quoted as saying, "At the end of the day, we need to find more playmakers." Well, he's picked at the very top of the draft for three years, where he should be getting not just starters but Pro Bowlers. Yeah, but he didn't select. But he, he didn't. Sele- but he sele- he didn't select playmakers with those picks. He selected defensive players, a quarterback and a running well, back. You, uh, um. Defensive players can be uh, playmakers. No, 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 no. But Bob, in, in the in 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 the in the reference that they were making in the press comments that we made on the show, when we say playmakers, and when they said playmakers, they mean guys that will help offense. your offense. Yes, that's correct. Well, he had five number one picks. Yeah, he he selected he had, a quarterback, a running back, an offensive he, lineman, a defensive tackle, and a cornerback. He didn't select one tight end or one wide receiver in the first four rounds of any draft in the last three years. He he could have. Yeah, but the team had so many needs, he decided to look elsewhere. Well, well plus, when you also... Saquon Barkley missed all of this season, number one. So, you know, he was an 18 first-round pick. You really only have two years of him, in fairness. And then when you say the offensive line failed... They may have found two, three guys actually on the offensive line. So to, maybe I four. Guess what I find troubling, Bob, is you say the quarterback's an incomplete grade. So isn't it fair to say then the offensive line's an incomplete grade at this point? Because point. if three guys were drafted this year and it's impossible to say what you have in all three of them, how could you say that's complete but the quarterback's incomplete? That doesn't add up. He's been trying to fix the o- the offensive line for three years, not just last year, and it still hasn't been fixed. No, that's fair. You just, that's fair. You just gave me statistics of how bad they were in uh, in um, win rates and pass protection. And all you know, the whole the whole business. Hey, look, Bob. Bob. In um, fairness, Bob. I, I will. I will. I think we can all see this point to you. We all would have hoped that when they hired Dave Gettleman in 2018, that the offensive line would have been further along in 2020 than they were. Now, that does not mean moving forward. And again, to me, Lance made a good point. This is an incomplete, right? We don't know how good Andrew Thomas is going to be. We don't know if Shane Lemieux is going to be a long-term starter. We don't know if Matt Parrott's going to be a long-term starter. We feel pretty damn good about Nick Gates at center. So, to me, there are any any trader for Kevin Zeiler who's a solid starter. So, we don't know about two or maybe three of the starting offensive linemen at this point. That's a fair question. Would you like them to be farther along? Yes. But I think, Bob, here, here's the thing, and, and this is the larger point I'll make that I think Paul and I tried to make last week on a show, and I know Paul's holding his powder here. He wants to explode. I'll let him do it in a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of the mistakes you're pointing out go back to 2018. If John Mara was going to fire Dave Gettleman for what happened in 2018, he would have done it after, next, after last season. So once he decided to keep him on after last year, and then this offseason, Dave Gettleman hits a grand slam in free agency with Bradbury, with Martinez, with Logan Ryan. The draft looks promising. Again, it's one year, so you don't know for sure, but it looks promising from what we've seen. 
Why would you then fire him after he has a very good offseason, even if you didn't like what he did three years ago? Uh, it's all, you know, it's all hope and promise. I mean, I... Bradbury's not hope and promise. Blake Martinez... No, no, no. B- 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 Logan Ryan's not hope and promise. Bradbury's not hope and promise. Blake Martinez isn't hope and promise. Those are three high-end players that they added. Right? I, I admitted that. I, you know, I admitted that, he, you know, he, he had a good year free agency this year. His draft, I'm not so sure. No, but again, I think about, but I don't think you know about any draft after one year, good or bad. So, and, and this is my point. If you called up with this argument in 2019, I think it has more legs, right? But once you kept him last offseason, and you say, Dave, we need your batting average to get better. That's what John Mara said, right? His batting average got significantly better. So then how do you go and then decide to let him go after he passed the exact standard that you laid forward in front of him for 2020? You know what I mean? I, I understand what you're saying, but the results just aren't there. Big picture-wise, they're not. Not yet. But they believe that the team is best served moving forward to building on what Gettleman and Joe Judge did together in 2020, which I think everyone thinks was very positive, than making another turn, change, and shift now. And I think you can even admit, and I know you've been on this for a long time calling the show, and I appreciate your opinion, but I think you can at least admit that that logic is sound, that you like what Gettleman and Judge did together last year, so you want to continue to build on that. Is that fair? Uh, I like Judge. I, I like what he did. I'm, I, I'm uh, non-committed to Gettleman. You know, just other than the free agents, um, you know, that's the first, actually, those are the first two things, Bradbury and, and Martinez, that's the first thing I could point to that, that, that he's done well in three years. I mean, in my opinion. I think that's a little strong. I think that's a little strong. You think it's a little strong? I mean, he hired Joe Judge. Do you like Joe Judge? Yes, I do. Well, and that's that's another reason why I don't like Gettleman. If 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 the coach is good, that means if and the team is bad, then it must be the players. Yeah, but you realize are Gettleman's responsibility. But you realize that Dave Gettleman plays a huge part in selecting the head coach, right? Uh, he he helped select him, but I just told you that I read an article where Mara was one that insisted that he be included in the list of can't. Mara found him, according to this article in the Athletic. Well, I have not read that article. I have no idea if it's true. But the bottom line, and the way this is the way, then Paul, you can jump in here because I know you're waiting. Oh, I have the, nothing to say to this caller. The, <laughs> well, at least back me up on this. The way the Giants organization works, if the general manager does not want the head coach, he's not going to get hired. Correct. There you go. Bob, you got anything else for us before we go? Uh, I just want one final comment. Um, when Gettleman arrived, the only team that was worse than the Giants was the Cleveland Browns at 0-16. Three years later, they're in the playoffs, and we're still bottom feeders. So I'll end it with that. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate the call. Well, Cleveland has added some talent in free agency. 
And also, it took them, keep in mind, a few coaching changes before they got to that point and, over the and last general, few years. And GM changes, too. Yes, <laughs> exactly. A lot of changes. So, and, and here's the other thing. Here's the other thing why I don't like the Cleveland analysis, John, okay? This year, they did very well. And I like Kevin Stefanski a lot, okay? I know a lot of people from the Ivy League that know him. They speak extremely highly of him going back to his playing days. I have nothing at fault at all. But can we see what happens with Cleveland over the next three or four years before we crown them and saying they fixed everything? See, this is the problem I have with NFL analysis. You see one team finally dig itself out of the hole after 20-some-odd years. So one year now gets rid of everything else that happened in the previous two decades? Do you really want me to go through the 12 head coaches and 10 GMs that the Browns have had till they got to the point of having one good season with Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Berry? Seriously? We're going to be willing to forget everything else. But now, all of a sudden, everything's solved because they're in the playoffs. That's ridiculous, and that's the lack of perspective. You have to look at a period of time, not just one year that stands out. And the other thing with respect to the Giants is when we have draft picks, I don't want to hear you see a draft pick after one season and already you know the draft pick is not going to contribute. Or, uh, by guys, the way, Lance, or if you know he is going to contribute. You, nobody knows after one year either way. Well, but here's the thing. The way that that last caller was talking, I'm not willing to go out and say I know what this 2019 class is all about. Are you guys willing to do that? Do you know everything from this 19 class already that we can make declarations? You mean 20, Do we know what Oshin Zimenez right? is going to be? I'd like to see another year of him actually on yeah, the field before sure. I perhaps get a better gauge of what he's going to bring well, to dude, the Dude, how table. about the fact that from the 2018 class, they didn't have Lorenzo Carter or Saquon Barkley all year? Yeah, exactly. You know, fellas, the only thing that I'd like to add to this Are you okay, is Paul? That, you said oh, it's, it's, look, <laughs> the guy's got a broken scale, and he doesn't understand the game. And I, I get it. I get it. It's okay. There was a lot of people out there like that. But here's the situation, okay? The Giants made one playoff spot since their last Super Bowl, and that was in 2016, right? And what do they do? They made a big splash in free agency because they had the cap room, they bought three high-priced free agents on the defensive side of the ball, and it turned out to be a one-shot deal that helped put this organization in the pit that it's in now, okay? Because they overspent on those guys. They got the one quick shot of sugar, went to the postseason, and then fell backwards. That is exactly what they're trying not to do this time. And so what happens is, when you decide that you're not going to do that fix and you're going to try to build something that's going to give you a five- or six-year playoff run, it's going to take you a little extra time that's a good point. to try to build that. That's a good point. So for every person out there who wants to say, oh, boo it's taking too long to get back to the playoffs, well, I tell you what. When the Giants do make it back and they go on a five- or six-year run where they're contenders, maybe you'll think about that instead of the one-shot deal that 2016 turned out to be. And by the way, Lance, to build on your point with the Browns, right? This is Baker Mayfield's third year. Can we see what Daniel Jones looks like in his third year? Baker oh, and by the way, it's also Cleveland's first winning season since that 0-16 in 2017. Because remember, their first two years since that time, they lost. They were losers under 500. And, oh, by the way, the Browns hadn't made the playoffs since 2002. 
Of course. And this was only their second winning season since 2002. So, my friend, would you rather have rooted for Cleveland the last 20 years? And one other thing I'll say too, Lance, and I think wow. you brought this point up too, is I, 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 this is not me making excuses, just me looking at how everything went. And John Mara and Dave Gettleman have basically admitted this, right? While Dave Gettleman started in 2018, and it's a three-year period, it's almost like they reset the clock again to start the 2019 season, right? They had to, John. Because you, you draft the quarterback, all right? So while Mayfield for the Browns, his rookie year was 2018, Daniel Jones didn't, didn't show up to 2019. And that's when you kind of began the transition away from Eli Manning. Mm-hmm. And they've admitted that they, to quote Dave Gettleman, in 18, they tried to rebuild and win at the same time. In retrospect, that was a mistake. And they've admitted that. Yep. So they basically didn't start the quote-unquote full rebuild, whatever you want to call it, in 2019. And we got a lot of calls in 2018. Oh, they're trying to win now. They're trying to win now. And my point always was, no, guys, they're trying to do both. And that was always a thin needle to thread. Mm-hmm. And we made that point a lot here, and it didn't work. Okay? Hard to do. So the clock was almost reset again in 2019. I know fans don't want to hear this, and it sounds like we're making artificial excuses, but that's just the reality of how the situation here went. And if you don't want to judge it that way, that's fine. That's your that's your prerogative. I understand why you wouldn't want to judge it that way. But I think if you look at it fairly, that is what you're looking at now. The, the jury's out on these draft classes. We might look back in three years and say, you know what? These drafts didn't work out well. We might look back in three years and say, wow, these drafts were grand slams. They're fantastic. We don't know that yet. What we do know is that the free agency class they brought in this past offseason was fantastic. And the trade for Leonard Williams, as much as you know, some people didn't like the, the theory behind it, and look, I was honest on this show. I'm not a big fan of trading for a guy that you also have to pay. I don't like doing that. But given Leonard Williams' level of play, the gamble worked out because there's no way to know for sure if they didn't make that trade, they would have been able to get Leonard Williams in free agency if he was franchised by whatever team did trade for him. So that, as much as fans didn't like the trade, it has worked, Okay. Oh, by the way, how many games would the Browns have won if Nick Chubb had missed basically the whole season like Barkley did? No, in fairness, Nick Chubb just missed five games with the with the knee sprain. And they also but have he Kareem played, Hunt, He played 12 yeah. games. Well, well but they also have games. Kareem Hunt, Paul, in fairness. Yeah, right. Kareem okay. Hunt's awesome. Well, and the Giants had Goldman. Hunt, Hunt ran for over 800 yards. Goldman ran for like almost 700. Yeah, Goldman's not Kareem Hunt, though. Kareem no, he's Hunt. not. No, no he's not. <laughs> yeah. But my point is very simple, okay? You can't blame Barkley's injury on Gettleman. Okay, no, and you could say that. that about a lot of different teams. If you take out their franchise player, where are they? Well, that's fine, but it's not an excuse. It's a reality. Every team that lost a franchise player for the season has the right to say that we expected or planned to be better had that guy been in the lineup because we didn't draft him or sign him to get hurt. We drafted or signed him to play. Well, that's another reason why, Paul, you can't argue, and I'm not, I don't want to get into a debate about where you should take a running back in the draft, but your argument can't be it was a bad pick in 18 because, you see here, the running back got hurt. So you're going to tell me the Giants expected him to tear his ACL two games into the 2020 season? Exactly. If they had the crystal ball, do you really think they would have made that selection? Now, exactly. in, now, now, though, in fairness, and we had this conversation before the draft, we did say running back is a more injury-prone position. Well, because and of the that shelf is, life. That is I get risk. that. Correct. But, but, John, anybody, regardless of the shelf life of a running back, nobody winds up taking a player. And no, I also don't think Saquon not. Barkley's a running back. I think he's a weapon sure. because of what he brings to the table. Christian McCaffrey's got it hurt, though, John. Do you think Carolina wants that pick back? Because look at how much of this season he missed. 
No, of course and not. Exactly. McCaffrey not. is just as important to the Panthers no as Barkley is to the Giants. No question. And they didn't so, make the playoffs, did they? Yeah. So well, all, all of that has to be guy. taken into context. 100%. Their guy. But Look, here's another thing that I wanted to bring up, John, to piggyback off of your point. The Cleveland clock reset, too, in 2020, I would argue. If we're going to look at it as the Giants clock reset in 2019, well, now the Browns completely revamped their coaching staff. Brand new offense, brand new head coach, brand new defense. Baker Mayfield, how many different coordinators did he have in his first two seasons? He did, so, but I don't think the clock reset from a talent perspective, though, right? Because no. they brought because they brought back Chubb, a lot of guys. Hunt, Mayfield, Beckham, Landry, all from yeah, the and year Beckham before. Beckham got hurt. Yeah, again. but still. But they, but they, they did not reset it from a roster perspective. Right. Like, if you go back and look at the Giants roster in 2018 and compare it to 2020, they look completely different. Correct. That's my point. Correct. That's fair. No, if you, if you look at it from that standpoint, I have no argument in, in terms of the core of the talent coming back. I, I guess I'm looking at it more from Baker's clock. Baker's clock essentially reset no, that, my eyes. No, that's fair. That's fair. Because I agree with Baker that. is now working with yet another new offense, another new scheme, and a new coach in his ear, which he had to go through for the previous two years. All right, I got another caller, right? Maybe we'll try to squeeze in a couple here. I know we've been chatting a lot today, folks, but I really think it's been a pretty good conversation. Anyway, caller, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Dave from Cranford, guys. How are you? Hey, Dave. What's going on, pal? Hi. Good, man. I just wanted to say two quick things beforehand. One, one, the fact that the New York State Lottery, a big sponsor of the show, has made a, a game right after Paul Dottino, I thought was a great, a, a great plug. Lance I, I loves it. Says, says, Lance oh, loves it. Says a yes. lot about. Says a lot about Paul. You know. Well, you know, um, Paul. Paul's very generous. He, he he's loaded. We all know that. He's basically Scrooge yeah. McDuck with his vault. And I he, just yeah. want to know where my take is. That's all. No, see, I, Paul. Okay. Paul, I, I, I think I, I think you need to go out and buy some lottery tickets. I mean, your name's literally on the game. How do you uh, not go out and buy Paul? it? Yeah, but I, I they're supposed agree. to give and me you, some winning numbers, and I, I'm still waiting. Oh, we're not fixing the, the game. And then you, can give them, you can give them out to your favorite callers. And then the other one, I just <laughs> just one little, just one little plug. Whoever now does like the outline for the Big Blue Kickoff Show, like shows you what at what time is what is talked about. I don't know who the heck does that. Yeah, that would be me. <laughs> for the most well, part, yes. Well, okay. But I get help from Paul okay. and Lance. Yes, it is awesome. Okay, you I, like that. I, 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 you I like love it. it. Okay, that's good. I love it. And it, and things get posted. So that that's that. Here here's my point about about Daniel Jones and just the team. And I know you don't have much time. The thing that gives me the most confidence that I think is is coach is judge himself around what he's saying about Daniel Jones. If we've learned anything from day one with Judge, is he's not one to just throw out compliments. Uh, to players for for no reason, and and it comes out well thought out, and I think that the reason that judge is so confident about Daniel Jones that the rest of us, I think you guys did a great job breaking it down, is we don't know the details of the game plan that they were very specific with. By the way, I think they I, I look back on a number of game plans and I really liked of them both offensively and defensively, and there were some where I really didn't like. Um, yeah, you know, David, to your point, he might have, even though his numbers were down, he might have been doing exactly what they wanted him to do based on the strategy for that game. And, and I think that was the case. And by the way, I do think when you look at the interception in the small windows, they did for some reason throw the ball and into, you know, they, they really threw a lot within the hashes. And there was, there was always a ton of people around, both on offense and defense, linebackers, cornerbacks, safeties, our own offensive players. And so those tips and a lot of those throws 
doesn't surprise me, and I think that's something they'll look at. And, uh, and I'll just leave you with, with this last thought, and that is um, just like Judge when he came in, in, in to do this, the thing that he's going to do this year, I think better than any other coach we've had in a long time since, since some of the bigger and better ones, and that is honestly evaluate the roster. He, there's, there's no, you know, he will honestly evaluate and, and address the things that need, that need to be addressed. Now, can they address everything in one off season? Of course not. We always know that, but he will honestly evaluate the roster. And, and I think that we should, I think he's proven to us how prepared the team was and how disciplined the team was that that is an expectation for a giant fan. I don't think that's a stretch. And so I'll leave you guys with that just because I love the show and I don't want to take up too much time. I know you're tight against the clock. Thank you, Dave. Paul Lance, thoughts? You know, John, I will say this. If you do believe so much in what Joe Judge says and evaluates in terms of his roster, then you have to be supportive of Dave Gettleman because all we have have identified is that they're on the same page. I mean, Judge could not say enough all season long about how these are the kinds of players we wanted. Dave Gettleman and the front office have gotten those guys for us, and they're bringing in the kinds of guys who are good for the locker room, good for the huddle, good for the attitude and the environment, good for the culture, that word again. I mean, how could you want to separate these two guys based on everything the judge has said? Well, and it also goes back to, Paul, what John Mara said when he met with the media after the season, where he said, you know, there were very few disagreements. There wasn't a time where he had to step in and be the tiebreaker. So, you know, going back to an earlier caller, if you want to now bring in a new GM and go down that hypothetical road, now you have to have a GM come in and establish a new relationship with the head coach and then get on the same page with the head coach. We have to stop with this belief that, Dave Gettleman makes these decisions and Joe Judge and the coaching staff has no influence or no say. Okay, I mean, I think that's a little misleading. Am I going to put a percentage on it where it's Dave Gettleman 60%, Joe Judge 40%? But if you don't think that that relationship has to be on the same page so that there's at least some common ground so that the GM is bringing in players that the coaching staff believes can help shape and work with, then that would be a naive perspective. So that's another reason why I'm not in favor of, for any organization, forget just the Giants, this revolving door of bringing a new GM because you weren't happy with the results of the previous year. Well, forget the talent. Paul you now have to then worry about the relationship being established between the coach and the GM and if you don't think that's important then once again I I don't know what to tell you because that to me I would think is just as important as the eye and the lens of the scouting department and the GM in terms of being able to pinpoint talent. Trust me Lance you would delay the Giants next winning season even further if you made that change today. 100%. That's also how when you read these reports and you hear these whispers and rumors, especially with some of the coaching changes that occurred over the course of the offseason, I'll throw in Philadelphia out there just as perhaps an example. When there are disagreements in philosophy between perhaps the coaching staff and the GM slash ownership, that's when all of a sudden, yeah, you feel as if you get to a road that can't be repaired. But when you now remove somebody that already is on the same page with the head coach, you now have to make up time to get back to the level you were 
once the previous head coach started. It's just, to Paul's point, you're now going to maybe put yourself a season or two behind simply because you wanted immediacy in the change process. And that, more often than not, backfires on teams. All right, guys, we'll go a couple minutes long here because we talk so much. I have one more caller on the line, and we'll do our little predictions for the weekend games too. The New York Giants and Quest Diagnostics want our fans to come back stronger than ever. Now you can order your own lab test through Quest Direct to get the health answers you need most. Call, you're on the air. Final call of the show. What's your name? Where are you calling from? It's Charlie, Portland, Maine. Hi, guys. You told me you weren't going to call in today, Charlie. You lied to me. I know, but I had to Should have ended the show three guys. minutes earlier. I, I, I had to Well, he wants in. to tell us how wrong he was about Daniel Jones. No, so yeah, go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, Take him yeah, that Oh, sure. I, I'm not even going to go there. But what I'm going to say, hey, John, that list that you do is really good, but you should also put on there when I call in. So people can skip it or they can go to it. Yes, skip it more, more likely <laughs> than not. Yes. There should be a warning label <laughs> yes. next to it, too. And, and Lance, when you're talking about not getting another GM, they could have got a GM that already knew Judge. The guy who went to Texas. He, You know, he was in New England. You're talking about them. Nick Casario, who just went to yes, the Texas. Yes, I am. Yeah, and so, you do realize now, that Nick Casario had contractual clauses that did not allow him the flexibility to take another position until this point. Were you aware of that? I'm just saying, but what you're saying is is that like a new GM is totally going to set everything back. That's not true. If they find somebody the judge already has worked with, your point is mute. Yeah, but what if that GM is not the most experienced individual? So you're just making a decision based on a relationship then. Well, that's what you're doing. No, (laughs) I'm saying that that's important to evaluate as much as the eye of the GM. I'm saying both factors are important. You don't just dismiss one and focus on one area. You have to weigh both. That's what my emphasis has been. And remember well, one thing, Charlie. A general that, manager yeah. encompasses a lot of different things. He deals with the scouting staff, the personnel department. There's a lot of things in terms of mechanisms and people and things that he wants too. And trust me, when general managers change – a lot of other things change behind the scenes that you don't see, which is going to set the time clock back again. Don't don't be foolish, Charlie. Well, don't seriously. Don't and, be and Charlie, shallow here. And, and by the way, the Lions. By the way, speaking of relationships, they hired Bob yeah. Quinn as their general manager, and he hired Matt Patricia. Both of them had a long-established relationship from How'd New that England. Work out? What exactly yeah. happened there? Would you like to explain to me, Charlie, what happened to the Lions? Both yeah. of them are out of jobs right now. They didn't now. have the talent. They didn't have the talent. Well, they but won. you just said that you could bring right. in a head coach and a GM right. that have a previous relationship. So there you have a previous relationship. That was what your happened? magical solution, Charlie, yeah. and Lance what just blew you out of the water. Come on. No, <laughs> come on. Look, and one other thing I have to say, Paul. Look, you're saying, like, in 2016, it was a quick sugar high. Well, the reason it was a quick sugar high is because Gettleman got rid of everybody the next year. He didn't have to get rid of JPP. He didn't have to break it all down. Charlie, 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 those guys, Charlie, did 2017 not happen? (laughs) Do you remember 2017? (laughs) No, it's a blur to him. He doesn't remember yesterday. We'd like to forget it, John. We really want to forget (laughs) it. When every single one of those guys were back on the team and they won three games. Do you remember that? Oh, my goodness. All all those guys. JPP was on the team in 2017. Yes. Four games, five games. Yes. You, what? Where Where have you been? Charlie, you know what I love about you? You make a point, go. and then you ask us for questions about facts. Don't you think if you're going to make an argument, you should JPP come with the facts? Was, JPP was traded before the 2018 season, <laughs> after the 2017 was, season was over. Who was our defensive coordinator in 2017? 17 was still Spags. 
that that was that was McAdoo's last year, Charlie. McAdoo, Do you remember? McAdoo had two years as head coach of the New York Football Giants. There's a thing <laughs> right, called Wikipedia. I, I that. That's you can what I'm go saying. Oh my it. goodness! All right, Charlie, we gotta go. Come on. JPP, Dipping into Snacks, those. Harrison, uh, Olivier Vernon. I'm going through the whole list. All of these guys were on the team that year. Dipping into those magic. Janoris Jenkins, again. Landon Collins. All these guys were on the team in 2017. Oh, uh, Charlie. Charlie, come on. JPP led the team. He had eight and a half sacks that year. <laughs> and they just magically got rid of John, him. See, yeah. see, John, this goes right to the point that I try to make every time somebody gets all wishy-washy and gets all ticked off when they call the show or they get me on Twitter. Come with the facts. If you have the facts, we can talk about some opinion that you may have that's different. But if you don't have the facts, then your opinion is irrelevant. You cannot base an opinion on erroneous things because then it's worthless. So based on my early math classes, then the conclusion here is that Charlie's opinion is irrelevant, right? That's what we've concluded, which I'm glad. Now, in fairness, I we've think— We've got it to the bottom of Now, in fairness, I think you concluded that a long time ago. That's true, but, but based on <laughs> Paul's logic now, he basically spelled it out yes. why the opinion is irrelevant yes. in case we haven't emphasized it. Enough. i got to yes. have a concrete foundation or the house does not stand. Well, I will tell you this. A plan for an argument does not call into a show and have the host make the argument right. for you. That's not a plan. I will tell you that. No, no. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Big Blue Kickoff Live is brought to you by the New York Lottery. Introducing Money Dots, a new game for the New York Lottery where you play for your chance to win money on the dot. Please play responsibly. All right, guys. Best weekend of football here. If you go a little long, else, Cameron, there's no show on Monday, folks. So this will be a little bonus coverage to make up for no BBK on Monday with Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I think it's going to be a great weekend. I think all four games have the potential to be close. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, hold on a second. You got cold weather in Green Bay with the Rams going there. I'll tell you what, in really cold weather, I'll take the defense any day of the week, and the Rams have the best defense in football. I think Cleveland, if they can keep, and I'm not a big, you know, time of possession type of guy, but if they can run the football and have some methodical drives that turn into touchdowns. I think they can keep that game against Kansas City close. You have Brady and Breeze, which is always fun. And then Baltimore-Buffalo, which is two of the hottest teams in the league. This is just a fantastic weekend. I cannot wait for these games. Give me your picks. Detino, you go first. I'll go Green Bay. I'll go Kansas City. Uh, I'm going to go New Orleans. And I really, really want the Buffalo Bills to win. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'll be pulling for, for the Bills Mafia. Lance. I'm going to go with the Packers. I agree with your points about the Rams' defense, John. I'm just worried about the offense being oh, able to manufacture enough points. That's, that's still the million-dollar question. That's fair. And when you look at their win over Seattle, I thought the defense between scoring a defensive touchdown and shortening the field for Jared Goff was a big reason why they walked away with a win. You can't go in thinking you're going to get Aaron Rodgers to turn the ball over yeah. three or four and, times. It and, could happen, but it's highly unlikely. Yeah, and by I'll the way, go, Jared Goff with a fractured thumb trying to grip a ball in 20-degree weather, probably not the best situation no, either. not fun at all. No. So to me, this defense is going to have to really shorten the field and get at least a defensive touchdown, I think, to walk away with the victory. Uh, as far as Baltimore-Buffalo, I've been very high on the Ravens ever since the playoffs start. I'm not going to change my mind. I do think this is going to be a close game, but there's just something that's clicking right now on both sides of the ball for the Ravens, much more so than Buffalo. I love Buffalo's offense, still concerned about their defense. I think Kansas City is going to have a tough time with Cleveland, but they'll find a way to win that game. And I like Tampa Bay 
finally solving the New Orleans riddle. I think there's going to be another close game, but there's something about the Bucks. I think showing them in which they had to tough out a game against Washington, which was a tough defense, but they did a really good job keeping Chase Young in check. I like Tampa Bay's chances of squeezing out a victory in New Orleans. All right, I think the Chiefs make enough plays on offense to beat Cleveland. I don't think Cleveland's defense is very good. I think they were fortunate with some batted balls and things of that nature last week against Pittsburgh. But then Pittsburgh moved the ball on them a lot in that second half. So I think the Chiefs do enough offensively to win that game by a touchdown. I think they probably win something like 34-24, something like that. Uh, to that night game, I'm with you. I don't. This is my reasoning last week. It didn't work out, but I'll go with it again. I just don't trust the Rams' offense to do enough, even against the Packers' defense that has not been great this year. I think you go with Aaron Rodgers. I'm going Buffalo here. The Ravens, to me, they beat a lot of bad teams. Then last week against Lions, and you made this point before the game last week, and you were right about it, that the Titans' defense is just not very good. In fact, it's very poor. The Ravens still didn't move the ball that easily. It took a couple of just special plays from Lamar Jackson to get enough points on the board. So I think the Bills score enough, and I think Josh Allen makes enough special plays to put them over the top. I think they win something like 27-20. to 20. And then at night, it's funny. I like the Bucs if they were playing the Packers. I, I think there's something about the way the Saints' defense plays that gives Bruce Arians and that Bucs offense trouble. They've seen that scheme for a few years now in that NFC South, and I think they know how to stop it, which makes me a little bit nervous. If that game was in Green Bay outdoors, I'd feel better. In Tampa Bay, rather, outdoors, I'd feel better about that. But in New Orleans, I think the Saints defense holds the Bucks' offense to under 20, and I think they win the game something like 23-17. Well, here's my only concern for Tampa Bay. Trey Hendrickson's coming back. He missed a Chicago game. He's by far one of their best pass rushers other than Cam Jordan. And he has really given the Bucks fits throughout the course of this season. That could be an X factor right there. But I did not walk away that impressed by New Orleans against Chicago. You know, that was a very drawn-out game. The Bears were with them every which way, even though they couldn't score. So I'd like to see a little bit more out of the Saints' offense, I guess, is what I'm a little bit concerned about entering this game as opposed to maybe what their defense No, and that's fair. And look, I didn't say the Saints were going to score 30, right? I think if the sure. Saints win this game, it's going to be because of their defense. If this becomes a shootout, Lance, I'm with you. I like Tampa. One item here, John, that uh, just came in a little while ago, and we should mention this, the uh, East-West Shrine Bowl, which, of course, is not going to be played this year because of the pandemic protocols, but they are doing a whole bunch of programs involving the players who were picked and are not going to get to play in conjunction with a bunch of NFL coaches, and the Giants have a number of members of their staff who are going to be part of this. Oh, that's Blevins, cool. Blick, Wright, and Trier are all going to be some of the NFL assistant coaches participating. And not every team in the league is sending coaches into this uh, into this program. So I think that's pretty cool. I think there's about a 10, 10 or 12 teams that are going to be sending some of their staff members into this program to participate where they're going to do Zoom calls and have interaction with these players. And we talk about how different it's going to be this year. We had Rick Serratella on the Giants huddle this week, you and I. That is up, discussing... by the way, folks. Go check that out. It is up. Yeah, in discussing how difficult it is to get some interaction and some information about this year's prospects in the draft. This could be of some use to the Giants as four of their assistants 
will be participating with the interactive program at the Shrine Bowl. I think that's something we just want to get out there. Yeah, good point. And we should also bring up the fact that a couple head coaches were hired. Jacksonville Jaguars hiring Urban Meyer. Dan Salamone's very excited. We'll see how long that lasts down there with his health issues. Uh, the Jets hiring Robert Sala. So that's done, and it sounds like it sounds like the Falcons are close to hiring Arthur Smith from, from the Titans, but that's not done yet. But those are the three ones that are kind of in the hopper, and we could talk more about that coming up next week. All right, guys, great stuff. Enjoy your long weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday. That was, to you, that was to Lance and Paul. Have a well, good weekend, I, did, I guys. didn't know if Take you were talking easy. to the audience or us, <laughs> no, but I, I will you. echo your sentiments, John, <laughs> after that dramatic pause. Enjoy, everybody. I'm sitting at my edge of my seat waiting for your response now. Yes. <laughs> yes. I hope you have a good weekend as well. <laughs> Folks, remember, you can find the, the Giants Huddle Podcast, the Giants Rewind Podcast, and, of course, Big Blue Kickoff Live on our podcast network presented by Investors Bank. Make sure you check it out at Giants.com slash podcast, the Giants mobile app, and all your favorite podcast platforms. For Paul and Lance, I'm Schmelk. We'll see you on Tuesday for another episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Enjoy your divisional playoff weekend, everybody. We'll see you then.